0: Welcome to Angel Lady Movie Talk. I'm Sherry Lee Myers. Here's part two of my very entertaining interview with our films director, Edgar Pavlos, who talks about the great movie directors and the great actors who have impacted his career. Thank you for joining us. Now we're gonna be talking about the span of time leading up to now where you were mentored by some really wonderful, wonderful film directors. And you also learn things from working with the movie stars. That's good. Yeah. Can we launch in about Joe, Dante, and the second Civil War?
1: Yes. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, it, it's it's available on HBO Max. Uh, it, it's also, you can rent it on, on Amazon. Uh, it's a movie that was really ahead of its time. But Joe did it as a black comedy. So it's very much in the vein of Doctor Strangelove, and uh, and uh, Joe did a beautiful job directing uh, the film and balancing the humor with the darkness. And uh, it's a it's an outstanding movie, a great cast. You had James Earl Jones, James Coburn, Brian Keith, Joanna Cassidy, Beau Bridges, Elizabeth Pena, Ron Perlman. I mean, Diane Hadea. I mean, the cast is amazing. And watching Joe direct and seeing him how he would handle these huge scenes with many actors at once and where he would put his camera. Uh, it was an invaluable lesson for me.
0: Could, could you could you share that um, advice that he gave you when you asked him about how to handle such a large scene?
1: You know, my job on that set was driving Joe to and from the set. And then while I was on the set, I worked with the first assistant director, J.P. Wetzel, as his assistant. So I was one of the set PAs that would... Basically, whatever JP needed me to do, I would do. And on those drives home, and Joe was so gracious and and um, allowing me to ask those questions, even though he was tired from the day's shoot, he would always answer my question. And I remember one question I asked him about this particular scene is, you know, there was a lot of actors in the scene. How do you know where to put the camera? Mm. Was my question. Yeah. And uh, and Joe, also being a student of cinema, responded with, Oh, I use the John Huston approach. And he said you have to allow your actors to do what they're going to do, work with them, trust your actors so that you see how the scene is going to work out in the blocking and, 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 and let the blocking come out naturally through them. And then once you figure that out, then that's when you put the camera. I mean, most directors place the camera first to get that great shot and then the actors come as a second thought. And sometimes that uh, prohibits the actor in some ways, or, or hinders their moves, or you know, or you know, it's a little uncomfortable for them, or not natural, just so they they can make it look visually interesting, at the cost of the performance. And so that was the biggest lesson I learned from Joe that you have to trust your actors. Your actors come first, and then the camera second. Uh, most directors would disagree with that, but uh, I like this approach better because, as you know, uh, we come to see performances and experiences and not necessarily camera moves.
0: But you were on set and you were all wrangling actors. Yeah. Can you talk about something quite amazing that happened with the great James Earl Jones?
1: He was a wonderful human being. And Joe actually put me in the movie in as a cameo. I played his cameraman. So I was shocked that he, Joe said, here, grab this camera and just walk down this corridor with, with James. And so before the scene, he... He he coached me. He said okay, what are we gonna do? We mm. talked a little bit, and you know, so we became friendly, and we did the scene. But he was just so generous as as an acting partner, and and even though I was just an extra, really, I didn't have any lines, but he wanted to make sure that you know we we did something, and so I, I did get to know him a little bit. And, and at one point, I had the courage to ask him to sign a Star Wars poster for me. He is yeah. the voice of of of, of Darth Vader, yeah. and uh, at that time, my roommate Alex was working at. 20th Century Fox publicity, and um, they were going to reissue the original Star Wars films uh, in nineteen ninety seven. So they were ge- gearing up for that campaign, and, and there was these new posters of of the trilogy. And so I knock on his door, and I, of course come in, you know, with that with that, with that great voice. And I and I and I said, Mr. Jones, do you mind signing these posters for me? He's like, what do you got there? And uh, I opened the posters, and there were the new re-release of Star Wars. And he said, I haven't seen these. Where did you get these? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, my, fr- my friend works at 20th Century Fox. Do you think he can get me some? He said, sure. And then he takes out his cell phone. He's like, what's his number? <laughs> and he just dials right there, and then he's just like, yes, Alex Chauvin, please. <laughs> James Earl Jones. <laughs> Alex, I'm here with your counterpart, Edgar. <laughs> And he just showed me these wonderful posters of Star Wars re-release. And I was wondering if he could get me some. Yes, half a dozen sent to this address. And uh, I remember coming home that night to my roommate. And Alex was like, oh, my God, Darth Vader called me. And he, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I was shocked that he did that. But he was so kind and generous. And uh, that's the kind of stuff that he would do. So James Coburn was a stock actor for Sam Peckinpah. And one of my favorite movies that, that James was in that Peckinpah directed was Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Mm. And at the beginning of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, James has this wonderful line where he kind of tells another person off, basically calling him a rotten son of a bitch. <laughs> but you know in the in that great James Coburn voice. So when I met him,
0: yeah.
1: I said, "Mr. Coburn, I don't I hope you don't find this awkward, but would you mind calling me a dirty, you know, rotten son of a bitch? Uh, and uh, he said, what? <laughs> it's not provoked. What are you talking about? I said, well, no, it's your line at the beginning of Pat Garrett where you tell Poe rotten son of a bitch. Will you mind calling me that? I said, no, it's not, it's not provoked. You're a good kid. No, I won't do it. <laughs> and so I said, fine, you know, and then, you know, a couple of days later, we were shooting really late and we hadn't gone to his part yet. And JP said, you know, go tell Coburn 10 more minutes. Uh, and so i knock on his trailer and he's like come in and he's and i said you know i'm sorry mr Grimm, we're gonna have 10 more minutes and then he just said god damn it when are we gonna shoot this fucker <laughs> and and then i asked him so is it provoked now do it now do it now and then he just looked at me he says you rotten son of a bitch coburn voice and i was so pleased i was like yes i've never been so happy being called a rotten son of a bitch anymore. but it was james coburn's voice and it was just heaven and he signed my laser disc of Pat with Billy the Kid, and I have a great picture with him. So after the Second Civil War, again, J.P. Wetzel, first assistant director, liked what I did for him on Second Civil War and how I drove Joe Dante around, and he thought that I, I would be great to drive Antoine Foucault around. And this was Antoine's first film. He had come from the commercial world and the music video world, and this was his first big movie studio film and so JP hired me to drive him around and then I also work on the set with, with JP. Chow Yun-Fat was a huge international star from Hong Kong. Ah. Uh, he starred in all of John Woo's movies in Hong Kong. And this was his first American uh, English language film. He had to wow. learn English for the film and he, uh, and he had a dialect coach to help him. Wow. Uh, I mean, he really worked hard because he really didn't speak English uh and so and then mira servino at that time she had just won her oscar
0: Mm -hmm. the
1: best supporting actress for the woody allen film mighty aphrodite that was interesting to see that that as a first-time director you know um he was used to music videos and commercials and so they they assigned him a a great editor who is known to working for with first-time directors, and this is Jay Cassidy, who was Sean Penn's editor, and who has since been nominated a few times for an Oscars for his work with David O. Russell's films. Uh-huh. Um, but Jay was assigned this job, and, um, you know, he, uh, seeing Antoine, I mean, he's a visually incredible director. He, he knows what he wants. He's a great eye with, uh, with production design. But but you know, like a first-time director struggling with actors. You yeah. know, when 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 someone you know going back to that what Joe Dante said when when you're when you're used to dealing with the visuals and the camera, at, often most first-time directors don't know or, or don't have the experience with actors. Yeah, that's um, that's a struggle, and uh, and then you have you know the different personalities, and so I, I saw Antoine struggle. Uh, with the actors and and then the studios interfering and with uh, with what he was doing and also uh, he was assigned certain things. I know that he was he was ordered to hire a second unit director and he was not happy with that type of footage at all. So he wow. loved action and so this was you know part of the politics of the studio of what he could and cannot do and um, and I remember at one point it was Chow Yun Fat that finally stood up for him. And, oh. Uh, and said wow. to the studios leave him alone he's doing a great job let's just all take a step back and let him do what he does so uh, part of my job also was you know driving Antoine to dailies after we would film
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, so dailies is you know you review the stuff you shot the day before and so you're sitting You after we you know do the 12 hours a day of shooting or sometimes more we go into editorial uh, screening room and review what we had shot the day before, or what had second unit shot before, and, and so forth. And that could take a, up you know a couple of hours. Uh, and um, I got to know the uh, assistant editors during that process. Yeah. And sometimes I would be there go between because I was driving Antoine. They would you know they would let me know when are you going to get here. Make sure to let us know so that we can prep. And so I always kept them up to date of, of the status of when we were leaving produ- you know production. Uh, the set to get to dailies mm-hmm. so i became friends with the first assistant editor named peggy davis and she was a wonderful wonderful lady and so when production stopped uh uh i offered uh, let me let me stay on as as your your post-production pa ah. and and she said we don't have the budget for it we already have we're you know uh, we don't have the money for you and i said well i will work for free oh man and 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 she said well we can't beat that so yeah so uh wow. i worked for free for about three weeks and she would pay for my lunch and on the fourth week she just she's like i can't do this i can't let you work for free so she went to the post-production supervisor and fought for me to get a paid position Thank i was you. the gopher i was literally the gopher of whatever the the uh assistants needed the editorial assistants mm-hmm. going to get food uh coffee Uh, Taking uh, at those times, you know, you're you're working on film and sometimes you need to take film to different departments. Mm -hmm. Sound was a different department. So I was carrying cans back and forth from the Mm -hmm. sound department Mm -hmm. to uh, editorial, to picture um, Mm -hmm. department. And so it was a lot of running around uh, doing that. But at the same time, I got to learn how to conform film, which, you know, handle film. Uh, they taught me how to, you know, do the splicing of the film and putting the, the tape at the time. So I was learning uh, that part of it, too. And and they were editing on Avid, um, which awesome. had, you know, which, you know, at that time was a, a pretty much a new thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only around digital editing was only around for a couple of years at that uh, point.
0: The editing team turned to you sometimes to get feedback because you were their target audience and how did that you know how did that occur to them
1: that came from Antoine because when we would when I would drive with Antoine we'd talk movies Uh uh-huh so much about Sergio Leone and I don't think he was a big Sergio Leone fan Michael Mann fan
0: yeah
1: um and so he knew I was a cinephile And, and he also knew that I was a big John Woo fan so you know he we'd have discussions and and Antoine would at times in the editing room would say let's get Edgar in here He's the target audience, and 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 I would go in there and see the scenes like that's great, you know, and um, and and it was the, the that kind of you know experience that I loved because they they knew that I was a fan and that they wanted to make sure that uh, someone who was a fan of Chow Yun Fat and the, the, that, those types of John Woo Hong Kong action movies um, was getting it and was liking it. I remember one specific uh, incident where. Chao Yun-Fat is known in the Hong Kong movies to shoot guns with both hands. Yeah. So he's got both hands and that's what he's known for. But in Replacement Killers, he's a more precise assassin. And he, he's, he for the you know first half of the film, actually three fourths of the film, he's only using one gun at a time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it isn't until at the end, the big climax, that he pulls out the two guns. And, but there was this one moment where when that climax starts, he begins with one gun and then he switches with two yeah and the the but there was a shot that antoine did that he begins with both guns barreling mm-hmm. and it's a great moment and i remember being asked what do you think one gun or two guns and i remember telling them i you've got to do two guns it's got to be both both hands both guns um. and um and so that's what they did and that's what what's in the final film and i had met michael mcdonald the producer on um on replacement killers he was one of the producers there, and he and I got along great. And I, to, to tell you the truth, I, I was shocked that he called me. He called me and and he said, I'm starting a, a film uh, at, at for Phoenix Pictures, and I'm I need an assistant to help me open uh, the office in L.A. before we move to Toronto. So I only need you for the L.A. Por- portion because I can't take you to Toronto, but I'll need you for you know three weeks or so before we we move on. And I said, of course, you know, and I remember at that time I didn't have a laptop, so I had to take my big desktop computer to the office uh. and start working with him. And uh, I was literally the second hire after the, uh, the director. Wow. And Jamie Blanks, the director, had an interesting story. He was twenty six years old. He had never directed a film before, but he uh, had done uh, this amazing short film in his native home of, of Australia and uh, a manager at Propaganda Films. And at the time, Propaganda Films was the big agency for commercial directors. I mean, Antoine Fuqua belonged to, to Propaganda, Michael Bay, mm. uh, David Fincher. I mean, these, these were heavy hitter uh, commercial house for mu- music videos and commercials. And, mm-hmm. and this manager saw Jamie's short film and signed Jamie on the strength of it. And it was a horror film,
0: a mm-hmm. horror short
1: film, film. Yeah. And by that time, which was interesting, is that Jamie had never worked on a, on a film before. I, at that time, I had done three now, so <laughs> I had more experience than he did. And so, our, uh when he came on board, I was still Michael's assistant. And so, while they were, you know, we were prepping the movie, getting the crew organized. I mean, I would call all the agents. Um, you know, the below the line agents and get interviews of costume designers, cinematographers, editors Mm -hmm. to meet with Jamie and Michael. And I set up all those interviews Mm -hmm. and, and then casting sessions, you know, with the, with the actors. Yeah. So while that was happening, Jamie and I were goofing around because Jamie's also a cinephile nerd and we would just quote movies from quote lines from movies back and forth and just stupid movies. And that's what we loved about each other, that we'd even quote something as random as Death Wish 3, <laughs> you know, and, and that he loved that I knew lines from Death Wish 3, you know. Uh, so it's, it's it was that kind of rapport that I had with Jamie that he he and, and I hit it off so much that he asked Michael if I could be his assistant
0: yeah,
1: and and take me to Toronto with him. And uh, and Michael said, yeah, that'd be, that's fine. And that's how I became... Jamie's assistant and got to go to Toronto when we shot that film. I was helping him uh, emotionally prepare for it because there were days when he was not himself and the, the actors were not behaving or what have you. So I would just, you know, help him that way. But it, but at, at the time, these are these are uh, young actors. Uh, we were all around the same age. So this is Jared Leto, Alicia Witt, Michael Rosenbaum, Joshua Jackson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they all came back, you know, their backgrounds were TV or film. And Jared Letter was the biggest, uh, actor, uh, of the bunch. Uh, even though he hadn't really, you know, he, he'd done one big TV show and a couple of movies, but he still had that clout. Uh, uh, and so Jared came in, in this movie and he has since not really talked about this movie. I don't think he's proud of this movie, but, uh, uh, Jared and the lead Alicia Witt, um, there were some scenes that weren't working. And and, and J- Jamie was getting frustrated and um, and it, it just something wasn't working in the scene and they couldn't figure it out. And uh, at one point, Jared turned to me frustrated after, you know, he left with James. He's like, what do you think, my man? You know, and, and this is something that uh, you never do. You, you do not talk to actors ever, especially if you're not the director, you do not talk to it. <laughs> but I saw Jamie's frustration and I saw the frustration and when he asked me that question I just I asked him a question in return yeah. and I said well do you find Alicia attractive? And he just looked at me, and was like what do you mean? Like do you find her attractive? And, says, no, and she's like no she's not my type. And I said well that's the problem. And 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 she just looked at me, and was like okay man. Thank you. I got it. Mm-hmm. And then so he went back and he, and he, and he and he did the scene and there was chemistry again. He was able to to help her, you know, in this vulnerable uh, vulnerable, moment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd later told Jamie that story of what I did and he thanked me for it, but it's, I don't recommend it to do it. That's a big no, no, you just do not do that. But in that moment, I really wanted to help Jamie out. And I figured if I get fired for it, I get fired for it. Oh, so, and it was a huge hit. Uh, Urban Legend to this day is Phoenix Pictures' biggest hit.
0: Oh my. So much
1: that it's spun so many sequels now, and they're actually going to remake it. I was able to get a, a job on reshoots for that film, Deuce Bigelow. My job on that movie was basically getting Rob Schneider his sandwich from a deli. So that was all that I was doing. Like I would go into the deli, get him a sandwich, and deliver it to the set.
0: And that's your day?
1: That was my day. And just uh-huh. watching it and if they needed anything, That's but that was pretty much it. And So I was only on there for two weeks while they did the reshoot. And uh but Aaron and I kept in touch and she was um uh she was very friendly. And so that job ended, and then about a week later, Aaron called me and said, Hey, you were a director's assistant, weren't you? And I said, Yes. Well, I'm starting this movie, this new movie called Time Code, and the director Mike Figgis is looking for an assistant. Um, so uh um, why don't you come in and interview for? It? And so I was like, Great. So I I went into the interview. The interview was pretty funny actually. I first met with Mike's producing partner, Annie Stewart, oh. and Annie Stewart is a, a force of nature. She's a wonderful producer, but she is all over the place. I mean, she's got a thousand things going, and so she, she, uh, she took me into her office and looked over my resume and said, all right, good, good. This is all good. You worked on a movie for an assistant. And then at the bottom, I put that I was a screenwriter I said, oh, you're a writer. You're not going to give Mike your scripts, right? And I said, yeah, you're right. I, no, I won't. All right, good. Look, I don't have time to do this interview. I'm going to put your resume right here, and I, and I promise I'll call you. Thanks. And then she walked out the door. And that was it. You know, and uh, I, I didn't know what that meant or whatever, but uh, the next day she she called me and said, come and meet Mike. Yeah. And so the next day I came in, and I was waiting, and there the production offices were started. I mean, it was booking. You had the ADs running around, getting phone calls. I mean, it was a madhouse, and I'm waiting there for – for Mike. And Mike shows up and says, why don't you come into my office? And I sit down and he's looking at my resume. And of course, you know, the first thing you put, I put in there was the U.S. graduate of the USC film school, thinking that that would mean something. And he looked at the top of that and he said, and you know, Mike's from England.
0: And he was famous for what had he done to that? his,
1: that his, His film that really put him on the map was Leaving Las Vegas. Well, he was nominated for an Oscar for directing and screenwriting, because he wrote the script. Elizabeth Shue was nominated, and Nicholas Cage was nominated, and he won. Yeah. So this was Nick Cage's first Oscar, and only Oscar, I think. Um, but uh, it was very well received, uh, and that put Mike on the map. I'm sitting in the interview with him, and he's looking at my resume, and the first thing he says, USC, the University of Southern California, is that in San Diego? <laughs> Like, like, uh, no, it's here in LA. So I was like, all right. And so he, uh, he looks down, at, and at the bottom of, this, of my resume, I put that I played an instrument. And he said, oh, you play the saxophone? Because um, I was in the USC marching band. I'd been in uh, the marching bands in all my life in, in Texas. And so he asked me, so you play the saxophone. Is it alto or tenor? And I said, alto? And he said, good, I prefer alto. And then he just went in and told me the story. He was about to tell me the story of what the movie's about. We're going to shoot this movie with four cameras. It's going to be one long take. And as he's getting into it, Annie bursts through the door, and said, "I'm sorry." And she called everyone baby. Uh I'm sorry, baby. Uh, I need to talk to Mike. Can you wait outside? And he said, "Thanks, baby." And so I wake up, I go outside, and she's in there with Mike for like forty minutes. Uh So I don't know how what's happening. And Mike comes out. He's like, I don't know what kind of news he just got, but he, feel, he, he, he looked deflated. He oh. turns over to me and says, uh, you got the job. And then, you know, and I started right there on the spot. No, know, I, no kidding. No kidding. Just, it was just like that. And what then are you it, doing
0: today? Wow.
1: Yeah, you start today. Let's go. And so yeah. I was shocked. I, I, I didn't, you know, one of those things. Great. It must have been the alto saxophone. I don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: But, but it, was, it wasn't until months later that I, uh, the UPM of that movie was this man named Dustin Bernard, and um, he overheard a conversation with someone else uh, about how I got the job, and I told him that story, and and I said, yeah, I was probably, you know, the only person they looked at, and he just like, come on, I mean, he looked so frustrated that I felt that he only needed someone right now in that spot, and I was it, and he just took it. And Dustin grabbed me and said, don't you ever repeat that. We interviewed 15 people for that post. You got the job on your own. Uh, and so that was a great compliment yeah. Um, yeah. from Dustin. So, I mean, this was an experimental film. It was the first film to be sh- to shot digitally, which is on digital video. The, the cameras did not exist. They actually had to do a Franken-Mac, a Frankenstein type of con- you know, construction where they used the body, the lens and body of a beta SB camera, but they were able to mount a DV cam recorder to it. Oh. And because it, at that time, DV cam was the only digital tape that recorded for 90 minutes. And that was the length of the movie. And we needed to make sure that it could last that long because it was one continuous take. And he had four cameras. And Mike was one of the um, camera operators. And so the the story, it, you know, the the there's four different storylines that begin in d- four different locations, and then they come together in one, and it's one continuous take. They're all filmed simultaneously, so the final film is a quadrant, and the way Mike, you know, technically edited, he edited it with sound. He would turn up the sound on one quadrant, uh-huh. then turn it down so that you can follow the story that way. That's why it's not all bombarded at you at the same time. Right. So you're following the story just through sound. And the sound, your eye goes to where the sound is and you follow it. And then the sound goes down in that quadrant and then you follow it to another quadrant. I mean, it was incredible the way he did it. He actually wrote the script in music paper, in a in a, in a quartet yes. uh, piece of paper so that each bar of line was a minute of film. Uh, and he had four cameras you know, for the yeah. quartet, A, B, C, and D. And what every camera was doing at a certain... Uh, time. And it was and it was all time beautifully. We shot the film 15 times actually to get it right. Um, and the cast and that was incredible. You had Stellan Skarsgård.
0: Oh my, I didn't know that. Wow. You had,
1: you had Saffron Burroughs, Kyle McAulkin, S- uh Salma Hayek, um, Holly Hunter, Julian Sands, <laughs> which was a character. Uh, I mean, it, it, the cast was incredible. Danny Houston, Oh boy. Um, Yeah. Actors, Janine, actors. Janine Triplehorn. Oh
0: yeah.
1: Uh, who was incredible. Uh yeah. So it was a great cast and, and seeing Mike wrangle everyone to do this experiment because there was no dialogue, Whitney. It was improvised. So uh-huh. Mike Mike had a plot of what you know, to do A, B, and C, but it was up to the actors to create their characters and their own dialogue uh to make sure that they get to the positions they need to get to.
0: You were telling me before that Mike had a different way of working with actors than the less experienced directors. What was that? How did he handle these amazingly accomplished and experienced actors? Well,
1: Mike comes from theater. Ah. That's, that's his first love. And he did experimental theater in London, Ah. where he combined, you know, film and theater at the same, and music. He's also a musician, so Mike composed the music to all his films. So he has that element to it as well. Uh, very talented man, uh, and so he he was able to wrangle them like a theater director, and he would you know shush everyone, shush, and, you know let's listen, listen up, and he commanded that respect, and uh, and and the actors would listen to him, you know, and 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 watch him. Uh, give direction to everyone. He said, I like that. I did not like this. And um, and and really help them get to that point for their characters. I mean, the great thing that, that Mike does in casting, he goes against type. Huh. Uh, I remember in uh, that film, One Night Stand, uh, the, a couple gets um, mucked. And rather than, you know, your typical uh casting that you would get some type of minority character that you've seen in movies over and over of of uh of these criminals mugging this couple mike cast these east german you know uh european uh man and woman to do the mugging i mean it was incredible and he did this with janine Triplehorn, where the the part was originally designed for andy garcia to play this mafioso type of guy and uh and and then mike went against that and just hired Janine Triplehorn to play it. And she played this lesbian mafioso. And, and, and she was amazing. Um, I had written, and written this, this script of a Western, a futuristic Western. And by this time, I had worked on all these films with these wonderful technicians and artists that I asked them to help me make this film. And Dan was one of them. Yep. He came on board as a, as, a, as, a, uh, as a producer. And he would also do the costume design. Um, uh, and I also, at that time on time code, I met my wife, well, who, you know, Jennifer Clymer, who we were friends first for so long. So we met on time code and she had come back. She, her background was producing radio in, in Chicago and theater and improv, uh, improv. Mm-hmm. And so I asked her to be the producer too. Uh, and, uh, slowly, uh, and then Annie during this time, Annie helped me, uh, in pre-production of trying to assemble a cast. Um, uh, and then Peter Jason, who I had met with Dan Moore,
0: mm-hmm.
1: who at that time I would hang out at the Farmers Market with in the afternoon. Uh, he's that guy, you know, that you've seen him in movies everywhere. He's been in most John Carpenter films and Walter Hill films. He he, uh, I recognized him when at your party. Yeah. And that's where I met him uh, at one of your parties and I quoted two lines from two different movies of his and We became friends instantly. I think it was from Johnny Handsome and uh, Streets of Fire. I'd hang out with him at the farmer's market, and then he introduced me to these great character actors. One of them was Caroline Drosky, who I recognized as the sister of Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man.
0: Oh, my goodness. And I
1: loved her character in that film, and so I, I wrote a special part for her in Agua Dulce, where she plays a female sharpshooter. Uh and the vicious sharpshooter, like she she, never misses. Uh And so I named her Bullseye Molly, you know, that was her role. I made her very much like Clint Eastwood and outlaw Josie Wales, but a woman. Uh And I think that had a lot to do with me working with Mike of of casting against type, you know. Um, And so we assembled this great cast um, and I was doing all this while still working for Mike. I enlisted his cinematographers from Timecode to shoot Agua Dulce, mm-hmm. I enlisted one of the assistant editors from Replacement Killers to help me edit, and uh, and then, you know, uh, JP came on board to help me, and he brought these two ADs, first and second ADs, to to help me, you know, while we sh- during the shoot. Uh, the script was about 15 pages, so it was about a 20-minute film.
0: Okay, and, and the lead was played by Nestor Carbonell. Right. Yes,
1: so that that the lead Nestor came from Annie. Ah. So Annie knew Nestor and Nestor at that time was in that Brooke Shields TV show Suddenly Susan.
0: Mm-hmm. He
1: was in the tick, uh, the Barry Sonnenfeld TV show The Tick. Uh, he played the character Bat Manuel um, and uh, so he very handsome uh, Latino actor.
0: I mean people and, know him now from the morning show. Correct. On Apple, Correct. He's, he's he's on
1: Apple TV, and and also on Lost, he played uh, Richard lost. on Lost. Yeah. And, and also the Christopher Nolan Batman, he played the the mayor, of Gotham. Yep. Um, and and um, anyway, Nestor, I was able to get the script to Nestor, and he loved the script. He met with me and said, "Man, this is an incredible story. What do you What do you have planned for this?" Because, he, to him, he said it didn't feel like a short. And he was right. I mean, the the intention of it was always to turn it into a TV show down the line, that this was actually part three of a series. And so that I would shoot part three first and then explain the mystery later. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, he loved it. And then he brought on Carlos Gomez to play his brother. And Carlos and I worked together on Replacement Killers. Oh, wow. So that was an easy, oh, great, yeah, let's do it. You know, again, everything was from the script. They really loved the script. Yeah. And then uh, at the time, I was uh, I was dating um, this woman who was uh, an, an actress. And uh, right before we were about to start shooting, she decided she'd never want, she didn't want to do the script, and we broke up. Mm-hmm. And, and so that left me high and dry of trying to replace her last minute. And again, Annie Stewart coming through, she referred me to uh, another actress friend that she knew as uh, Sydney Bennett yes. and and Sydney, you know, this is one of those, those lessons that i learned of how, again, going back to the visualness of, of how I saw the story, and picturing this redhead female, because if it, it the story is about these two people coming together to create a life. Um, I really wanted to make a statement that it was that for the next um, evolution of human, um, of humanity, I feel like the races have to come together. So I didn't want it to be a Latina and a Latina. I definitely wanted to be, um, two different races to come together. And so this, this visual of this redhead, you know, I kept thinking about it. So Sydney fit that bill perfectly. Uh, and, 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 and last minute, you know, she was able to come in and, and, and do that and uh and yeah so that rounded up the cast and then Peter also uh helped me find the bad guy you know because i you know one of the producers i had worked with on the set pa was larry gordon who as you know produced 48 hours uh yeah. die hard one of the greatest producers of action movies ever he discovered john milius and and uh walter hill and i he gave me great advice uh and he said that that uh, the the only Thing the the way a good movie works is that you have to have an amazing bad guy, you have to have a great heavy, and and so I learned that from it, and I created this this bad guy, uh, who was inspired in part by this character, the judge, in Cormac McCarthy's book Blood Meridian. And I wanted him with a top hat, I wanted him whistling Beethoven, I had all these things planned for him, and and Peter introduced me to his friend Jeffrey Alan Chandler. Yeah. Who, um, unbeknownst to me at the time, was kind of in a blacklist. No one would hire him, and uh, and and then Peter took me aside. That the reason that no one would hire him is that he was suffering from AIDS.
0: Oh my goodness!
1: And uh, and so I, I I spoke with with Jeffrey and and hired him on the spot. I thought he was a, his audition was fantastic, and so it as it turned out, this was his last film, oh and he my. was so happy. He was a uh, Peter told me that this was the, that he came alive again, uh, doing this film. He shaved his head. You know, he wanted the character to be bald like that and and uh, and Dan fit him with these glasses. I mean the, the his costume is just beautiful what Dan put together with him and um, yeah, and he had a ball and you could tell and he's wonderful in that role. There was a you know, I ran out of money. First of all, I was very naive to think that I could do the whole movie for ten grand because I'd saved that much yeah. uh, in the film uh, for all the work that I've done, and, um, and that would just covered the first weekend. Uh, and I didn't know that until we were getting ready to shoot, so I, I had to come up with a second ten grand that week before the second weekend, and uh, that was a challenge to do that. And and that's where my family came in to help. Um, Everyone chipped in, my grandmother chipped in, my sisters, my brother. I mean, everyone chipped in, Jen chipped in uh, to get that, that final, you know, uh, money to, to complete the film. And the thing that was that was also challenging is the actors' schedule because they were working actors. And so I, ideally I wanted to shoot – we had two locations, uh, and I wanted to shoot one location one weekend and shoot another location the other weekend. So it was a four-day shoot total. But because of the schedules of the actors – we had to do a company move each weekend. So one location on Saturday, another on Sunday, and then the same thing for the...
0: Oh, my goodness. Days. Yeah, And okay. it
1: was in Agua Dulce in the hottest summer on record. And there were these actors were with wool costumes. It was freaking hot. Brutal. Brutal, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but but the challenges from there, uh, I mean, we, we got it all done as best as we could. One of the assistant editors on Replacement Killers came on board to 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 edit it for me and and he wanted to do the first pass and that, that's the tradition that the editor does the first pass and when he finally showed me the first pass it, it wasn't the movie that i wrote and i said okay well this is the a first a first cut let's now let me get into it and and take it from here and he said no this is this is it you didn't shoot enough stuff and so you're delusional to think if you can get that script that you wrote into what you shot that's not the case
0: what was it you saw that he did that really was so incorrect or wrong
1: he edited a lot of things together he did a lot of dissolves and voiceover work that was intended for a scene that he put as a voiceover, and he just didn't he didn't edit the script and he said that i don't have enough footage it's not there and i know what i shot and because of the time constraint my shooting ratio was three to one so it was very tight. Most films are you know, sometimes 20 to one. But I knew with the schedule and what I had, I, I had a very limited amount of time to shoot, but I know what I shot yeah. and I knew that it was there. So I had to let him go, you know, and, and, and I didn't know the avid. So uh, that kind of left me in a position of what do we do? And because then he left, I brought in a, another assistant editor, but he can he was working on, on another movie so he can only work at night. And we only had access to this Avid from 10 p.m. to midnight every night. Right. And at the time, because it was such oh, an older right. machine, every cut would take like five minutes to render. Right. So it was brutal, that process. But I learned the Avid and started editing um, myself. Yeah. And and and, and so I, I edited and yeah, everything that I shot was there. I knew what I shot and it, it came out fine. The thing that... That, that at, at, at this point, I knew that um, on the last day of shooting, uh, we were scrambling to get some shots, that I knew that I was going to need to do some inserts, and, mm-hmm. and I was prepared to do that, but I showed the cut to Mike Figgis, yeah. and he said, well, so let me get this, the, the point of this movie is that these two people get together to create life, a child, that will then someday do something for humanity, and I said, yeah, that's the gist of it, and you don't have a love scene and he said you you could you you need a love scene and quite frankly you need nudity you know and 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 that was a that was you know mike is known for that type of sensuality in his films but he was right to a degree that you do need a love scene i was very shy about doing it and you know that was i in the in the film the way i i um laid it out it they just it just fades to black you know and then you assume that they made love and then the, the next morning the things happen so he he said, "No, you need you need this love scene." And and the more I thought about it, the more okay. How can I do this tastefully? And uh, and and I remember talking to him like Mike. I can't. I, I'm not paying the actors. I can't ask this actress to do a nude scene and not pay her. And and he was like, "No, she'll do it. She's an actress. She'll do it. You know." But don't be afraid.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, and that was the lesson there. Like, don't be afraid. Okay. So okay. I had the conversation with the actress. And I and I told her what I was planning on doing, uh, and she said, "Okay, I can see that." And and I said, "I'm not going to do any nudity, but I, I'm going to shoot you from this from this frame up, and you know you'll be you'll you'll be in the positions of as if you're making love." And uh, and she said, "Great, that's fine. I can do that, but you know I want you to operate the camera." Mm-hmm. And so we we set up an additional. Uh, day of shooting for this love scene and and the inspiration actually going back to what i talked about the french new wave francois Truffaut did this beautiful film called uh, shoot the piano player and there's this there's this amazing love scene there where it starts with a couple kissing and then it, it dissolves to them sleeping after the fact
0: yeah
1: and then it dissolves back to them kissing and then it dissolves to them after the fact laying together and i thought that was a beautiful tender caring moment and that's and I knew that's how I was going to do it and so I was able to do that during that sequence of, of doing that and I thought that was a very tasteful way of doing the love scene
0: Algo Dolce did very well
1: it won awards in, in Mexico and in the US and Santa Fe and Texas and me having Mike Figgis on my side I don't know if that helped or not but a, a lot of the 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 film festivals um, turned me down and and some of the you know, later I would find out that, that each year they have a theme that they have to go through. And so, you know, Westerns aren't popular.
0: Right. Uh,
1: and so, uh, especially a supernatural Western. And so they didn't fit with uh, with a lot of the, the programming that they had at that time, which was, you know, like I said, it was Tarantino, it was edgy, it was real, um, not necessarily Western or fantasy. After working on three movies with Mike, three years, and then also working on commercials, uh, I, I realized that I was not writing that i was not doing the things that i needed to be doing and so i quit it was a hard decision to do but i i quit my job as an assistant and just started writing full-time i lived off my credit cards and savings for three years oh my and when that when the money ran out uh i realized that i needed to do something and so i i started a production company uh with my writing partner judith cummings And uh, to do these videos Um, and that business grew um, from just doing these corporate videos for organizations nonprofits and so forth that one day my older brother Rolando who is an attorney came to me and asked me for some help Uh, he um, he tells the story that he was in his office one day and this Mexican-American gentleman approached him and said I'm looking for an attorney to help me sue Union Pacific Railroad. And and my brother like hears this guy's story that um, a, two trains collided outside his home, which was ten miles south of downtown San Antonio, Texas, yeah. in a rural area, and one of the trains was carrying toxic chlorine gas, and it enveloped the area killed the engineer of the train and this guy's neighbor neighbors and uh it left him and his family his kids with permanent lung damage oh my and and he was looking for an attorney to to sue them and um my brother apparently the 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 man who who wanted to hire him tells the story that the reason he hired my brother because out of the many lawyers that he interviewed my brother was the first one the first thing that came out of his mouth was I'm sorry this happened to you and your family. Uh, and again, going for that, that empathy that, that I guess we have in my family, yeah. that heart, um, this guy loved it and said, I want to hire you. And my brother said, I'm not a litigator. I, I do international law. Uh, but he was insistent and said, no, you, you lead the team. You hire the litigators that we need and you come up with a defense. You come up with, uh, with a strategy, I should say, to sue Union Pacific Railroad. And uh, my brother knew that Union Pacific was a big company. They, they Their profits were in the $2 billion, uh, And he knew that he couldn't go to court with them because they would lose. They, they would keep it in the courts forever. And so his strategy was to settle out of court. And, uh, uh, and at the time, he set up this, this mediation. So in mediation, you get both sides. And the mediator hears the case yeah. and then decides whether... They should settle out of court or go to trial mm-hmm. and my brother's strategy was we got to scare these guys into settling
0: mm-hmm.
1: because if we go to court we're done for it. i don't have the pockets the deep pockets to sustain that type of court yeah so uh my brother called me and said i need you to make a, a film for the mediation to scare the other team to settling out of court and so I I, uh, I went to San Antonio. I heard this guy's story of how the trains collided, his his ordeal with his family, and I wrote a script based on that. And in in in, in um, uh, I I formed it into a structure of what happened and how uh, they barely escaped with their lives. Did some interviews, and I spent you know a, a month there filming the interviews and cutting it and editing the film. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it was a powerful film. Um, so much that my brother tells the story that when they presented the film at mediation, because you can't, you, you wouldn't be able to present this film at court because, you know, but you're basically telling the other side, this is the story we're going to tell in court if we go to trial. So do you want us to tell this story in court or do you want to settle right now? And when the lights came back up, the mediator turned to Union Pacific and said, "I suggest you settle right now, um, because yeah, that's that's my suggestion." And and uh, the the attorneys from uh, Union Pacific settled, and um, and the family was awarded uh, a good amount of monies to pay for their uh, hospital bills and welfare and also created a law of what, uh, where trains are allowed and not allowed to travel, and it also created a special hazmat unit that should be at all of these places where these trains carrying these toxic chemicals uh, are located so it's easier to get to in case there's another spill that one film led to others because the word of mouth came uh, yep. that we did this mediation film. So we are able to do a, a, a lot of these. I call these like my mini Aaron Brockovich stories. Yes. because it, it really is David and Goliath type of stories of, of trying to, um, un, you know, call out these big corporations that are doing harm.
0: Can you share a little bit about how you work with, interviewing people.
1: Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of this Union Pacific Railroad. The man who hired my, uh, my brother is ex-military Green Beret. Oh. The toughest guy, Mexican guy you can possibly meet. And so how do you open up to someone like that? How do you get them to be vulnerable in front of you? Yeah. And so I spent time with him talking of other stuff, of movies, of, you know, getting to know him. I had dinner with him, lunches with him. He explained um, his career in Vietnam and, and Special Forces and just hearing his story out. And and it was his uh, quick thinking that actually saved he, he and his family to escape this cloud of chlorine that was literally going to come and get them in the middle of the night. And and once he... he got to know me when i got him on camera yeah he became vulnerable and he broke down um and he stopped himself he's like you know because there's this moment when they're escaping the cloud that he tells that his little girl in the back seat said daddy are we going to die and that moment he said i mean i'm i'm getting choked up just thinking about it um that he never experienced something like that that oh my god this is my little girl Just tell me and he didn't know the answer he didn't know he did not know whether or not they were going to make it and to live through something like that and be able to be vulnerable like that because he even says so on the video that you know in the mexican culture you're taught to be tough yeah you know that you have to put all those facades of being macho and doing that that but when my little girl told me that are we going to die you know he started to pray he prayed and this is you know this is something very interesting with the theme of our story here i was Uh, just thinking something (laughs) he prayed he prayed uh, he he said to to the virgin of the lord that's what he said please help me help my family and in that moment he heard a voice he says a female voice that told him to stop the car right now because they were in the middle of the night it was dark there was cloud around them he couldn't see he was in the field and a voice told him to stop and he stopped the car and he got out and in front there was this big mud pile that if he would have gone in there he would have been stuck and they would have been killed oh my he got back in the car and drove around it and was able to escape oh. but that's again going back to our theme of, of, a, of, of that power of intention and, and where the angels come from I mean, that was his experience and he said that it was a voice, it was a female voice that he heard
0: can you just give us the laundry list of who yeah. you are working with
1: the clients that I that we've picked up along the years have helped us, you know, not only pay the bills, but I think that they've taught me to be a better storyteller. Because every story is different. Uh, through organizations that are nonprofits, some of them are institutions like uh, the USC Latino Alumni Association that are trying to raise funds for first generation kids to go to school, and the school is expensive as USC. We've worked for the San Antonio Housing Authority. Uh, yeah. In, in lawsuits for them um maldef the mexican-american legal defense and education fund um we've done a lot of documentaries for them for their galas where they raise money and they honor a civic leader of some kind mm-hmm. and we tell the story of that person and why they're getting that award
0: mm-hmm. so
1: people like dolores huerta they've been honored uh, eva longoria we've done videos for her um done uh, interviewed um robert kennedy's daughter um, and 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 people like that civil right giants uh and um, congressmen and congresswomen mm-hmm. uh, i mean we we're doing videos right now for the congressional hispanic caucus institute we're doing videos for latino justice which was formerly the puerto rican legal defense and education fund mm-hmm. um so yeah our clients are are you know they can be something like that with the nonprofit world to the profit world we're, we're doing this great campaign with united airlines right now in usc where united airlines is giving away twenty-five thousand dollar grants to small businesses owned by veterans, so we just finished a campaign for them oh. to help veterans. Oh. So yeah, it's a it, the client list is, is is large, but you know, they are um, <laughs> people that do good for the community. Let's
0: talk sure. about what drew you to the story of Angel Lady.
1: Well, first and foremost, it's a it's a single mom story. And I'm, I'm very much taken by that struggle that single parents have raising their kids um, and working uh, with Annie Stewart on those Mike Figus films, she was a single parent and watching her navigate that you know with her, her little boy and producing these movies at the same time. Mm-hmm. The struggle that she went through was incredible. When I was uh, 14 years old, my dad. Uh, went back to school in Mexico City to get his specialty in orthodontics, mm-hmm. and left uh, my mom to run the business and take care of the kids for that year. And that year was my worst year. It was eighth grade, and eighth grade is tough as it is, but that year without my dad was brutal for me. And um, and, and and that was just a year. So I can't imagine kids having to deal with that without a dad or without a mom their whole lives. And so. That has a special place in my heart for those that struggle with that, with single parents. And the films of Robert Benton and specifically come to mind because he's, he's done that. He did Kramer versus Kramer, if you can remember, and mm-hmm. Places in the Heart with Sally Field is the single mom trying to raise her kids during the depression. Um, powerful stories. And so that was the first thing that drew me to Angel Lady, but there's also a magical realism involved in Angel Lady whether you believe angels are real or not, there is that mysticism to them. And also it scares people to think that are angels real and not real and like, is this a Christian based movie or not and that freaks people out. And the way I see it, the the, the beautiful thing of magical realism, it's open to interpretation. Um, And those are the films that I gravitate towards. I mean, there's a little bit of magical realism at the end of um, Places in the Heart. a beautiful spiritual moment at the end of Places in the Heart. It's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and movies like like Water for Chocolate, and as you know, magical realism is very much a Latin American. Um, it, it comes from Latin America. It's known in Latin America from from the literature there, and so that drew me to it. Um, and and the the combination of those two, uh, I thought would make a great movie. When you all approached me with the script, the script was set in New Orleans and Cajun country. And I love that part of it, the the music of that culture and everything. But then when you you both had the idea, what if we move this story to the border? It opened up things for me. And so you're right. Let's let's do that. And we developed the script accordingly that you have technically this woman from the south, white woman, struggling, working class, ex con. And she's running away from her past, and she winds up on a border town as a waitress in a Mexican restaurant. And the surrounding community are all Mexican Americans. So when you have a world where the working class, the white community feels threatened, uh, in many cases the country feels threatened by immigration, by Mexicans, it's become such a dirty word now being Mexican, that I found it, uh, you know, interesting and poignant to have this woman be surrounded by this mexican-american community and embraced with unconditional love because that's what the community does yeah. um, i know that uh, growing up all my friends that who were not mexican-american would love to come to my house there's this story that my friend eric spear that i grew up with he'd always tell his mom i'm going over to edgar's house because it's warm there's family there's aunts uncles grandmothers Everyone's there, and it's just this joyful place of love, and, uh, and and his mom was always like, "Well, what about here?" Like, "No, Dad's always watching football. I don't want to be here." And uh, and that that always, my friends would love to come over to my house.
0: Yeah,
1: and that's and that was the place. It is a place of love, and so th- this 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 community on the border was that symbol for me of 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 embracing. Um, those that are not part of the community, but still welcoming them into it.
0: I can't be, more, could not possibly be more excited about the uh, prospect of what you you will be doing and creating with this. So, do let's tell people what is happening at this moment with the project. With well, the,
1: uh, the the good news is that it's in the hands of a very well known actress, uh, and we're working with her um, agents. To um, to package this this film and and set it up financially, yeah. Uh, and so we're working with them. We're waiting to to hear her schedule and to see if she can do it. And if she says yes, we're off and running, and we can go get this movie made. So we're in that process of the, the waiting game to see if uh, if she says yes.
0: What is that philosophy that keeps you going? You personally going through periods of waiting uh you know that that, the
1: alchemist is is one of my favorite books and it talks about that waiting period where the lead character is just making glass you know and just waiting for things to happen And, and it frustrates people that waiting period and they don't understand what why do i have to wait why why is you know there there's an impatience in us uh not to trust the waiting period and um a dear friend of mine said something to me that i'll never forget and he said that time is not your friend, but timing is. And you have to trust the timing of things. And and knowing when to surrender and knowing when to let go and, and giving it in as he says, let go let God in many ways and and allow things to happen naturally. Trust the timing of things. And that's what I'm uh we we've come so far, all the coincidences that had to happen for not only for you to get the script to this actress and everything that came after that. Yeah and then connecting with their agents and connecting with a company that wants to finance it. I yeah. mean, these are all powerful coincidences that you, they just don't happen every day. So you feel like you're being guided. And so to not trust it right now, I feel would be a terrible idea. So I am I am moving forward on that trust of letting things unfold. And, and if worst case scenarios, it doesn't happen, we do have a plan B.
0: You've brought Alma Martinez, who is going to be an amazing Dona Maria. I mean, you have brought us and Peter Jason is on board and Mimi Kennedy is on board and we've got people lining up who are going to bring such richness to this project on screen. So it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. wait. And and again,
1: going back to the journey, Alma Martinez, the only reason I met Alma Martinez was through my work with MALDEF. And then a few years later, the USC Latino Alumni Association honored Alma. And I was able to do a video for her. Mm -hmm. And so that was a a great way to learning her and and her background. And so we become friends since and I love her work. and I love her soul.
0: Yeah.
1: And she's gonna make a great Doña Maria. Yeah. There's a common thread to all those wonderful civic leaders, civil rights, people that I've, I've interviewed throughout the years. And there's a common thread to most of the successful ones. And they they say that this is the secret to life. And uh, they say the secret to life is helping others. And I've learned that and have taken that on. You know, I, I, I've learned to give back in some ways of mentoring. Of, of, I was shy to tell my story for many years because I felt like it was bragging. But you understand that when you tell your story, you don't know who you're going to inspire.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's the important thing you have to inspire those coming behind you so that they feel that they can do it too that they can achieve and that's why we do these stories to see the struggles how they're overcome and to all basically say hey if they did it I can do it too and that's what these stories are about and that's what so I think that the, the personal legend is that you have to pave the way uh, inspire and um, and help Thanks. help
0: thank you for listening please visit our website, to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook at AngelLady-Movie. It would be wonderful to have you join us. Thank you. Bye.